Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmgren, and with me in the studio this time is Henrik Andersson. Henrik was a guest in episode 7 and he also did the interview with William Green in episode 4. Welcome back, Henrik. Thank you very much. It feels really good to be uh, here this rainy day in Stockholm and spending some quality time with you and uh, our guest today. It's great to meet you again and uh, since we have many new listeners, maybe you can tell them a bit about yourself. Sure. So I've been an analyst and portfolio manager for uh, 20 plus years and today manage a concentrated low turnover global equity fund and consider myself very lucky to having gotten somewhat of a head start into this business through my college education at University of Nebraska. And if there is one audience that uh, knows about Nebraska, apart from college football fanatics and people in the corn industry, it's for sure the one listening today, I believe. Definitely. And for those wondering, how how come you are here instead of uh, Niklas? Well, that's uh, one very good question. Um, I um, happen to be a vivid reader of not only investment books, but also great uh, market letters from, from, um, from investors. So I believe it was around 2007 or so when I first found Smead Funds, which was founded by Bill Smead. And I really loved their writing or missives as they call them, uh, both for the writing itself it's eloquent, clever, and with frequent references to lyrics and music. And those lyrics, oddly enough, seem to explain markets and stocks quite a bit. So later I reached out to both uh, Bill and his son Cole, that also works in, uh, in the business. And we started exchanging emails and ideas and stock tips uh, and so forth. And eventually we actually met here in Stockholm at a lunch when they were on a business trip here. So I have to say thank you for, for introducing Cole to us. and. Uh Looking forward to have this conversation today. So which book has he selected for the episode today? So uh, Cole and his his father has a very rich and wide ranging library to choose from, especially since uh, he talks about books quite a bit in their own podcast. Um, But the one that eventually made it to the finish line uh, first uh, is the one and only Money Masters. Money Masters was written by John Train and first published in 1980, with several later editions featuring more investors. We are delighted to discuss it with the CEO and Portfolio Manager of Smead Capital Management. Here comes our conversation with Cole Smead. Hi Cole and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you for having me. I apologize for my voice today. It's great to have you on and and thank you for taking the time despite uh, your cold. Uh, But where are you located today? Uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. Is it the the office or or home office or where are you? Uh, uh, This is our podcast studio I'm sitting in, uh, which is an old office turned podcast studio. Nice. And to begin, maybe you can tell our listeners about your journey into investing and, and life. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'm in a little weird because, you know, I grew up with a dad who picked stocks, which is just, you know, that's not common. Um, I have a very, you know, strange path in this, which is that, um, in effect, you know, I, I was blessed to have a discipline to kind of come into life with. Uh, my, my dad has been managing, you know, his investment discipline since the early 90s. So I, I had this opportunity where I had undergirdings, I had 
you know, uh, teaching that, that most people don't walk into. I'll, I'll never forget when I was in high school, the tech bubble was raging my sophomore year of high school. And it really crystallized what investing is to me. In other words, we all have to kind of seek out what is investing to us? How, who are we as people? What are our temperaments? What do we do well with? What do we not do well with? And, you know, I, I think watching that um, episode of Markets really taught me that being opposed to people is where I can have a lot of success. And I know that sounds weird to say, like being in the opposition. In other words, I'm not likely to be a person that can walk around and agree with a lot of people and make money. I need to find situations, markets, places where I'm doing something different because I actually feel more comfortable there. Um, so I'll, 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 like as an example, back then, you know, I, I was playing, uh, you know, high school sports. And so these parents would run into my dad and I would hear these conversations where they're talking to him about, um, you know, what he's buying in stocks and they want to talk about the hot stocks of the day. And they were all dot-com names. And the reality was those people were talking about their misery. It, they didn't know it at the time, but it was their coming misery. And I had a teacher in high school who, um, God bless him, he's a very nice guy, but he would want to talk stocks in between class. I mean, I'm 16 years old and he wants to talk to a 16 year old about stocks. Um, at the same time, I, I would tell him, you know, I'll call him Mr. B for lack of a better term. I said, Mr. B, you need to go away from this. This is just gonna end up in damage. And I didn't know that as an experienced human. I knew that as someone that had someone close to me, my dad, who had really taught me, you know, what investing is, um, how much damage can be wrought upon someone for what goes wrong. And it, I think it really also teaches beyond you know who I am as an investor. I think the other thing it teaches is most of investing success is actually just not doing stupid things. In other words, it, you're not doing something magically. You're not making a decision that no others made. You're actually eliminating negatives, which sounds really weird to say, but a lot of investing is a negative art. Think of whether we're talking about you know, stock picking or someone investing in a private business. How do you eliminate bad things? that usually creates a lot of success. I agree. And, and I also think there is something that you have innate, something that you're, you're probably born with. And you have this kind of money mind that, I mean, it's also mentioned in the book that we're going to speak about today. And we know yeah. Robert Hagstrom has written a book about Buffett. And today when I entered the studio, Henrik was, his first comment was about the, the microphones we have here, the brand. Oh, they are, they have a big market share. And you have <laughs> the, this kind of thinking. Have you also had this like, from an early age, this money mind? Well, so I, I told this story before. Um, so we, we drive into a small town, you're on family vacation, you know, kind of classic, stereotypical American road trip, right? So you're driving into a town and dad will turn to us all and say, hey, what business would you want to own? And when you're, you're younger, you're like, oh, the candy store, the toy store, you know, you're a kid. And dad's like, no, 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 that's not, no, guys. You want to own the local beer distributor. You want to own the local Coca-Cola bottling company. You want to own the mortuary. You want consistent businesses. Now, he's saying that irrespective of price, okay? In other words, he's not getting a quota price, but generally speaking, that is right. You want a consistent business. It's an easily understandable way to get wealthy. And so he would be drilling that into our head at a young age. Now, I still think about that today. <laughs> so for example, walk into a room, no, there's no prices. They give you options and you're going to pick the most consistent business. I actually had this happen uh, like a week and a half ago. I just wrote on this. 
I went to a Kentucky Derby party, okay? And I show up at the party and there were no odds being given on the horses at this party, okay? So like showing up in a small town, if there's no odds, in other words, you don't know what you can make for taking extra risk, what are you gonna do? You're gonna bet on the company's dad said, you're gonna bet on the Coca-Cola bottler, the beer distributor. In horse racing, it's the favorites. You bet on the favorites because there's no odds, okay? So I did, <laughs> I took $100, I bet the the top four uh, the top four favorites, uh, and you just got paid. It was like half the pot for win, uh, a third of the pot for second, and um, a sixth of the pot for you know who came in third. Well, so mage won. Mage was a long shot. Again, you didn't get compensated for the long shot, but so a longer shot won. But two of the four favorites ended up went you know getting second, third. Okay, now here's the great part. I put a hundred dollars in, you get, you could get diluted. I actually provided investment advice. I know you guys would be shocked to find that out. I get advice other people to follow my strategy. <laughs> so I put a hundred dollars in, I made $110. Hey, I made 10% of my money. We had a wonderful party. Life is good. <laughs> so I say that because those principles that dad put in my head, I mean, I still think about them all the time. They still apply. I mean, I just used them a week and a half ago, but it, it's that framework. And to your point, it is a money mind, like like you were talking about with Henrik walking in and thinking about the mics. I mean, I think of how often I run into people, you know, classmates of uh, classmates, parents of my kids, and I say, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" And I'm intrigued to learn what do they do, how do they do it, how are they capitalized, you know, um, who, what's tough in their industry, who's their biggest competitor. Those are all incredibly interesting things to think about. It sounds like you really have the right curiosity, but also that you you have had some help from from being close to your dad early on and learning a lot. It's quite interesting in the book. I mean, we will go into it, but he describes it that many great investors are born poor or at least not very rich. Um, What's your view on that then? Yeah, you know, I, I I look at that as it's really, I think it's your point, back to the person. I like, for example, I, I, this sounds weird to say, but again, I, I've thought a lot about myself relative to my father, if that makes sense. Okay, um, and it's a weird, it's a weird thing to do. So I would tell you, <laughs> this is the funny part. I'm seventy percent my father and thirty percent my mother. Okay, um, the fact that I'm listening to you guys and I'll remember this in a couple of days means I have my mother in me. <laughs> also, my mother loses her voice often. Here I am, you know, losing my voice. I get, I so I know I have my my mother in me. But here, here's why I say um, there, there's little idiosyncratic things you pick up on when you, I mean, I sit next to my dad, we talk all day. He's actually in Europe right now on a business trip and we're still trading emails, talking, etc. But here's the weird part. I can, I can tell subtle differences. So for example, my dad wants to be validated. In other words, he wants, like, let's say he joined your podcast. He'd want you to say, gosh, Bill, you've done so well. And that would be his highest esteem, okay? Versus me, I want to get on a podcast like this and and you say, gosh, Cole, you've made so much money. In other words, like the wealth that's been accumulated in my mind is the actual goal, not you telling me, gosh, you've done well. Because if I've created a lot of wealth for our investors, I know I've done well, right? And I know that sounds really subtly different but they're vastly different than each other. Um, it's it's how you, you know, my, my pleasure comes in the wealth accrual process. 
his pleasure comes in the accolade of success. And those are different. And, and again, those are two different things that drive us differently. And so it's like, we're very similar people. We have a lot in common. Like you said, I'm blessed to have been born into um, the ability to go do this. But here's a weird thing. I have two brothers, two sisters, none of them do this, right? So that, that didn't drive them like it drove me. And so I think about those idiosyncratic differences. How did I get here? Why did I do this? I mean, thank God I'm not playing baseball. I, I, this would be a miserable profession, for example. Thank God I'm not flying Navy jets. Those were the other two things as a kid I wanted to do. And I look at it as, does that mean I, I couldn't have been successful? No, it's just not what God wanted me to do. And now you are here, an investor and a big reader. And we're here to talk about the book Money Masters by John Train. Yeah. So which edition do you have and, and when did you read it for the first time? Uh, you know, I read this years ago. I actually, so someone stole my original copy. Um, to your point, uh, these books are hard to come by. And let's see, this is, this is the 1980 copyright edition. Um, uh, let's see. Yeah, so my, my so a little weird. I don't know if you guys have had this experience. These books are going up precipitously in value. Okay, in other words, like your podcast, podcasts like ours. I, I mean, the, the longer we go, these books become like what used to be like baseball trading cards here in the United States, where it's like a collector's edition because this book isn't in print, and no one's. I mean, I, I, he did an update of the book, and it's like the new Money Masters. This is like, um, this is the richer, wiser, happier of its era, if you will. And so I, I, I find it interesting that you can buy these books, you wake up in five years and they've doubled in value. Um, maybe we're, well, yeah, no, it's a, it's a tiny market, right? So we can't really run a hedge fund based on this, but there's value. <laughs> yeah, or at least the price goes up. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so when did you read it for the first time? I, I, I read The Money Masters, this is go about eight years ago, is when I originally read the book. And I mean, there are aspects of this book that you can capture elsewhere. So like the Buffett stories, you know, there's a lot of other places you can get those stories. I don't look at the Buffett part or, or really the Graham part as the secret sauce of this book. I would look and say, it's a gateway drug to John Templeton. Like if you read this and you're captured, um, there are certain kernels you'll find in this book that you can't find elsewhere. For example, um, the Templeton Growth Fund, it was not a U.S.-based mutual fund. It was a Canadian fund. So um, it tells a little bit of a story about moving to life for K and being in the Bahamas. Um, I find that very interesting. It, it rehashes his story of buying penny stocks, which everybody knows. You can also, you know, Lauren Templeton and her husband's book, um, Investing the Templeton Way, recants that probably better. Um, but I think that the most interesting chapter is chapter seven. And chapter seven is T. Rowe Price. And when we hear T. Rowe Price today, we think, oh, that's that blue chip quality growth shop in the United States of America. And it is. But um, T. Rowe Price, the man, was vastly different than T. Rowe Price, the money management firm. And I think that studying that is the most interesting chapter of this book. We'll go a bit deeper into, into the lessons from him. But first, the author of the book is John Train. Can you say a few words about him? Yeah, so John Train, um, you know, I, I think of to give another era, uh, John Train would have been like the John Brooks, if you've ever read the Go-Go years. He would yep. have been a, a formidable New York writer at the time um, and was very well known when this book was published. And, and you got to remember that the, the 60s were a hot stock era. 
So the, the likes of a, of a John Train coming out of that era, this was a known quantity author. Um, I mean, to give it an example, Spencer Jacob wrote The Revolution That Wasn't. He's the herd on the street, Wall Street Journal columnist. It would be a writer like that coming out with this book to talk about, you know, post what we just saw in stocks, what it transpired. And so John Train um, would be an iconic name for then. Now we don't know who John Train is. Most people say, oh, John Train. Other than this book, this is really his epitaph in so many respects. This is his legacy. And so I find it interesting that you don't hear that name outside of that, much like, you know, unless you've read the 1960s book, others like John Brooks would never be known. Yeah, I agree. And uh, actually, John Train, he wrote about 25 books in total. But but as you say, this is the most famous. And he was born in 1928 and he died in August 2022. Um, so it's good that we can discuss this book with you now that yeah. he's not, not with us. And the book, I mean, it covers a number of great of the greatest money masters, as he, he calls them uh, at the time. And uh, he has included them in a bit different way. Maybe you can describe the, the structure and how John Train is like showing their style and, and what what is every chapter about? How, how does he make them? Yeah, so what he what he does is he goes through, you know, he, he structures it a lot like William Green's book, Richer, Wiser, Happier. He goes through a series of chapters based on investors. And now here's what's interesting studying the test of time, what chapters mattered? I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. So for example, to your point, to go through the list of, 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 of investors, he goes through He goes through Warren Buffett, he goes through Paul Cabot, Phil Fisher, Ben Graham, Stanley Kroll, T. Rowe Price, Sir John Templeton, Larry Tisch, Robert, and Robert Wilson. Okay, now, if we break it down and say like, who mattered? Here we are in 2022, who mattered? Who mattered was Warren Buffett. Phil Fisher, Ben Graham, T. Rowe Price, Sir John Templeton, and maybe, maybe Larry Tish. That's who mattered, okay? Now, why did the others not matter? Well, because they didn't end up being out, out the outstanding investors that the people I just mentioned were. And really, in some respects, you could, you could say that Ben Graham's lineage is really just Buffett. In other words, Ben Graham did well for his time, but he blew up quite a few times. Um, so I point that out because Ben Graham, you know, his par excellence as a teacher is really why we study him. Um, he was less successful as an investor, but it, what he did as an offshoot has obviously changed the world. And also a lot thanks to Buffett highlighting him. We recently spoke about Roger Murray, uh, the, the professor that took over after Ben Graham at Columbia. And he is yeah. almost no one knows about him, but he, he was also very important for many, many investors such as Gabelli. Um, but uh, Buffett highlighting Graham has really made him so famous. Yeah, and of course, I also his, his books. I agree. So so who would you like to highlight a bit more? Well, I, I think that the T. Rowe Price chapter is just remarkable. Um, so, you know, we all know T. Rowe Price for the money management purposes. It is the big blue chip quality growth shop that we all know today. And so T. Rowe Price, uh, where he called himself Roe Price is how he referred to himself. Um, was you know the creator of that? I mean, he created the he created the T Rowe Price Growth Stock Fund. He then, after launching that, went on to launch the New Horizons Fund, which is maybe the most popular T Rowe Price fund of all time. Um, and then he, after that, he launched the New Era Fund. Um, so, he, I mean, he was an interesting person. Uh, you know, if you, just reading reading through the lens of John Train, he was probably tough to work with. In other words, he was a great investor, 
But if he figured out you were competing, he would eviscerate you. And and John Train made that obvious. So it, you know, he called it he was irascible. He was this very excited, successful investor. He would call up on the phone and say, "Well, do you know who I am?" In other words, like there there's there should be like chariots preceding his call and calling out to you to say, "Bro, price is calling. You better be ready." So um, now, so again, I, I'm I'm framing this as I'm interested in him for what he did as an investor. Would I want to work with him? No. <laughs> um, which is, is, I'm sure we've all met people that are, as we, as I say about pro athletes, they're good from far, but they're far from good. Okay. Uh, in other words, like you want distance. Um, you don't want to get to know them very closely because if you did, you might be disappointed, but an incredible investor and, and really what, what, what we know and think of as like blue chip quality investing today, I would really say that T Rowe price laid out the foundations of that. In other words, the consistency of a business that that principle i think he understood really well um and what he what he did i think successfully was waited till they were in the doldrums waited till those types of businesses had fallen way off he also knew the difference between you know a consistent growth business in other words like a i'll, I'll use to use like a staple like a coca-cola kind of a consistent business versus a, what they what he referred to as as a uh a cyclical growth company. When I say cyclical growth, you think of like a pack car, for example, where they have, it is cyclical, but over time, peak to peak, trough to trough, it has consistently grown its business. And he points out that you have to weigh those things differently. You can make money differently in those two subjects, but you have to weigh them differently because obviously a cyclical business doesn't have the same merit as a consistent business. Back to the principle that I mentioned that my dad touched on when I was young. So I, I think those ideas are throughout this chapter. I think they're a great uh, primer uh, to understand really, you know, kind of quality, um, but really quality with consistent growth. To, to give another example, when I read this chapter, I think of in a present day, I think of someone like a Terry Smith of Fundsmithing, for example. Um, now, we, we can get into this, but his pivot that he does, that, that uh, John Train talks about later in the chapter, I think is by far the most interesting part because how do you go, you know, back to what you said earlier, Henrik, flexibility or kind of the pragmatism, you know, like you think of Charlie Munger, Charlie Munger is like the ultimate pragmatist, right? Like when, when, when asked to comment on Elon Musk, he says, I think he's brilliant sometimes. <laughs> right. Right. And so I think the, there's a pragmatism that you'll find in T row price that I think you'll rarely find in investors. And that's, I know that's strange to say again, but, but he was a pragmatist to the point where, again, his sole goal was to be successful. It wasn't to be right about the things he was right about yesterday. But I think that's something that goes through all of, all through the book. I mean, the, in one of the main lessons is that this importance of you need to be flexible and Correct. you need to adapt to the changing times. I mean, when you read the, the different investors, they say it and also John Train highlights it in the book. But you also need to avoid falling for the the herd behavior. So okay, how well, do you think about that? Yeah. So well, in the prior chapter, in chapter six, Sir John Templeton touches on that numerous times: flexibility, flexibility. And he was doing that in an era where, I mean, he was the first ever global stock fund in America. I mean, just think about that: first ever. So here he is buying Japanese stocks in the '60s when nobody wants 
touch anything tied to Japan versus when they all, to your point about the herd, in the in the late 1980s when everyone was falling all over for Japan, he was sitting in the United States by then. So I, I agree with you. And I here's what I think about a lot today. Um, what does the herd love? So to your point, T. Rowe Price, and by the way, like in all good financial statements, the footnotes in chapter seven are amazing. There's two of them. You should read the footnotes. So T. Rowe Price was watching his old firm. He was watching others like Morgan Guarantee, which was the, they coined the Nifty 50, okay? That was the, you know, blue chip quality growth uh, uh, Nifty 50 shop. And then the other, here's a crazy one, U.S. Trust, U.S. Trust. So now here's the weird part. We're talking about two trust businesses and a blue chip money management firm getting tied up in a mania because the Nifty 50 was a mania, okay? And if you go back and study the market history, there was a nasty bear market in 1969. If you go back and, 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 and study that, and by the way, John Brooks, The Go-Go Years is a wonderful book for studying the 1960s. That crushed the average investor in 1969. Individual investors left public markets with the, the 69 bear market. By the time you got to 1972, where T. Rowe Price would have been railing against what his former colleagues were doing, that was a professional only market. But again, it wasn't like racy stockbrokers. These were trust businesses. These are like who grandma walks into the door with and has her, you know, in today's terms, like her $10 million trust account. And these are people that were supposed to be steady, eddy, very blue chip, et cetera. And what it exposes is that you can take back to our, the principle earlier, you could take the most consistent businesses in the world and you could damage investors at the wrong prices. And by the way, I think that could not be, there, there, there's nothing so apropos to today, okay? Because let's go look, we, we often look, a way of looking at this is, go look at the 10 largest market caps in the world today, okay? Historically speaking, and I, I wrote about this back to my Kentucky Derby thing, those are the favorites, right? Those are the perceived favorites in the era ahead. Now, the great part about the stock market is they give you odds, right? The stock market is there to give you odds, like all betting houses. And those favorites are a terrible investment return over and over and over. And the crazy part is people still love betting the favorites. So if you go through that list today, it is loaded with blue chip quality American companies, right? It is Microsoft. It is Google. Those are all the blue chips of our era. Who will recommend them? Every mom and pop wealth management firm, brokerage firm, trust business, etc. And that's the problem is they're the favorites. They're not unique. And isn't it interesting? They're thought to be low risk just like the Nifty 50 were. I'll give you an example. If you go one step further and you go into study the Nifty 50, and this would be like, I look at John Train's book, it's a gateway drug. It's a gateway drug. You read this and you're like, huh, I'm perplexed about T. Rowe. Let me go deeper. So then you go to John, John, John Brooks' book, The Go-Go Years, and you get into it and you learn about a business called Simplicity Patterns. It was a knitting business, okay? A knitting business. Now here's what's weird, no debt, 
produce very high return on equity, like 25, 30% return on equity, which for that year would have been incredible. Great growth business, women knitted, okay? So you think about all the things we talk about in a current business, it fit many of the things that people look for as investors. Now, by the way, the fact that you don't know about the business today means that something went wrong. Something went wrong in how investors thought about it because they way overpaid for a business like that. And that's what that, you know, that was the kind of things that T. Rowe was screaming against. It's not a question of whether there's attributes of these businesses that are valuable. It's that we're in a different era and people are paying way too high prices. And so I think that's the real damage. It's not the business, it's price. It's the price that people are willing to pay for these companies. And again, I, I would say that is what's gone on in this era. And by the way, you know, some might say, well, this hasn't been like 72 to 74. I'd be like, well, you're implying that it's over. Do you have something something to comment there, Henrik? Um, no, I uh, I just like the name of that of that business. Sounds enticing, right right, <laughs> <laughs> right off the bat. But um, it was too enticing, I guess, at the time. Well, well also, I mean, like he's got a uh, you know, I think if you go if you go to the Sir John Templeton chapter, he talks about a business called uh, Wells Green uh, Wells Green, which was a advertising business. And to your point, you know, the worst part about business is businesses are actually always dying. Okay, so think about it like this, okay? I'm gonna use a Charlie Munger, I'm gonna use a Mungerism, if you will. Someone said to me, Cole, does it bother you that some of the businesses you invest in are dying? And I said, well, who's the fool? Is the fool the person that knows that or the fool the person that doesn't believe that's so, okay? When a business is born, it is in the process of dying, okay? And I know that's really weird, but you're just trying to find the expiration. That's all you're trying to figure out. Is it two years into the business? Great, it never succeeded in some respects. If it's 100 years later, it succeeded, but it still died. I know I have uh, Googled this before, like which is the oldest company in the world. And I think it's some, some Japanese company that's still been around for a thousand years or so, but that's a very rare exception, I guess. Well, now, and the, then the second question is, would you have wanted to be an owner of that? <laughs> probably and not. Probably not, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the funny part is like, would you want to be been an owner? So, I mean, just think of, you know, when we were kids, GE would have been a blue chip creme de la creme business. Now, when in 1995, that would have been, to say you own that, you never would have got criticized. But to say you own that today, you do. You do get criticized. So again, I, I think we, we tend to practice uh, chronological snobbery. We look back and say, oh, it was, you know, there was so much dumber back then. No, no, the 72 to 74 bear market that T. Rowe Price is talking about, you know, that was back when we didn't have behavioral finance and we didn't have Daniel Kahneman's work and we didn't have all this stuff. And the answer is, well, we didn't have, you know, Kahneman's work, I agree. But you're assuming that just because Kahneman has spoken is God has fixed humans and that has not happened yet. So that's the problem is humanity can't get past itself, which the good part for you guys and myself is it's called job security. Um, that's why we make money. If, if people don't do dumb things, how can you profit from it? 
And I think this is a good argument to to listen to our podcast and read these type of books. I mean, Agreed. as you speak about John Brooks, I mean his uh, his first book uh, or or the one that's covering the the time between the two world wars. I don't know if you read it. Once in Golconda, I think that's it's similar to Go Go Years, like bringing yeah. up so many business names that you have never heard about today, but they existed back then and they were quite big. Well, and, and uh, I mean, because I, I look at so I'm gonna I, I analogously think about things so. John Brooks, he was the Michael Lewis of that era. Okay. He was the writer that, you know, again, similar to John Train in that he was in the New York scene, but he was more known. John Brooks was a more well-known writer, I would argue, than than John Train. Uh, but again, the history lesson to go back to 50-year-old books, I mean, this is timeless stuff. You you cannot find this. No one was going to tell you this. You can't write read a research report that says this, you know. In the VC world, no one's going to be like, hey, let's go back and study other young businesses that just were about to enter public markets or what was the scene like at that time. You just can't find this kind of stuff today. And coming back to T. Rowe Price, is there something you you don't agree with him? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, by nature, he, he would be willing to take a lot more risk as it pertains to a young business, I think. Um, now... That being said, he was looking for the same attributes we would. We want a business that can produce a very high return on equity. And by the way, if it can so happen to do that in a self-funding way, where that return on equity not only self-funds, but then is growing, has the potential to grow. Here's an example. We were, you know, as we were watching this banking debacle go on in the United States of America, we jumped on a call with a bank who's had insider buying, things that we look for. Oh, Templeton in this book, he, he loved insider buying. So one of the questions I asked them was, hey, you, you've ran 20% return on equity the last few years. What would help us understand that you can sustain that or grow that? Versus the history of their businesses, they often fall off to maybe 15% return on equity more normally, or at low points run 10% return on equity. And their book multiples on their bank fluctuates with those return on equity numbers. At the low end, they trade for one and a half times book. At the high end, they trade for three times book. So these are just like, again, you're just looking at odds, return on capital, et cetera. And his answer was, well, we don't target return. <laughs> now, if T. Rowe Price hears that, he's going, well, I do. <laughs> I look at return on invested capital, which is something he points out in the chapter. And so immediately, it would be the kind of thing where both him and I would say, hey, there's a problem. That's something we want to focus on as an investor. And these people don't care. We're not aligned. Back to, you know, Munger's incentives. We're just not aligned on that. So I think that's where we would have a lot in common. I think I think T. Rowe would be willing to pay a lot higher multiples. Um, I think where we would disagree the most is not the blue chip businesses. It's the younger businesses, the less proven businesses. So I think that's where I would disagree with him. But again, back to our prior conversation, his ability to pivot, if you look at his book, I think, I think if I remember correctly, he ended up with like a third of his portfolio in like what, what what most growth stock investors would consider garbage businesses, right? I mean, like I'll use I'll use Terry Smith, okay? Terry Smith, you know, would never own what T. Rowe ends up owning during the 1970s. We're talking about natural resources business. We're talking about gold and silver companies. I mean, you know, to put it in American politics, those are referred to as the deplorables most often in the investment business. But here's what's interesting. The 1960s, really, if you go back and, and study it, 66 was the relative high in growth stocks. You made a higher high in 69, you made a higher high in 72. 
but nothing to write home about. It was marginal highs. And the 70s became a dominant era of oil company outperformance, uh, commodity business outperformance, gold outperformance, everything that T. Rowe Price pivoted to. So I, I, I asked the question, you know, what kind of person can do that? What kind of person can make that pragmatic pivot and do that at the odds of what they're known for? In other words, T. Rowe Price was, that was a growth name. It still is a growth name. I mean, nobody outside of John Train's book, you'd never know this about T. Rowe. And by the way, I don't think the folks at T. Rowe Price want most people to unearth this either. It's not in their brand's best interest. But I'm interested because I want to make the most money. I want to steward and, and use an old term, husband, husband capital the best. And that would imply that, to your point earlier, like John Templeton says in the book, the flexibility like T. Rowe Price exhibits in his career and in his life um, the worst part is he didn't start a money management firm and go put this in a track record because he did it in his personal accounts is what the book you know, explains. But he made substantial profits. Now, substantial profits in an era where investors lost money in stocks. OK, so in other words, I, by the way, if you go one step deeper, Buffett had a terrible run, 69 from the end of 69 to the end of 74. That was a terrible run for five years of Buffett. If you go um, you know, elsewhere, Sequoia Fund launched because Buffett closed his partnerships in 69. And, and this book mentions Buffett closing his partnerships. And if you go read Buffett's writing at the time, he said, I knew what the game was about and I didn't want anything to do with it. That's when he became just solely the chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Well, when he closed the partnership, he sent him off to Sequoia Fund. And that's why Bill, you know, Bill, uh, Bill, uh, Bill Ruane launched Sequoia Fund. So Sequoia Fund was launched in July of 70. Guess what? Sequoia Fund did terrible to the bottom in 74, okay? So Buffett underperformed, Sequoia Fund underperformed, and here's T. Rowe Price killing it in a nasty, nasty bear market. Now, by the way, oil, if you study oil, oil had a great first five years in the 70s, and then Buffett remarkably matched or beat oil in the, in the latter part of the 70s. And so, again, I, I look through this book, look through the lens of what it teaches, and look and say, okay, you want to be T. Rowe Price in an era like today. You want to go find businesses that you know nobody wants to own because they're so antithetical to the rearview mirror. Or you know, Sir John Templeton had a lot of success in the early 1970s. That chapter six, study chapter six. I mean, those those two chapters combined, those are formative in an era like today. I would argue. But even Buffett, you know, it's like here we have Buffett filing over the weekend that he bought more oxy. Okay, he filed on Monday. Okay, so. Let's say we're in the Berkshire offices, okay? I'm the fly on the wall. You're Charlie, you're Warren, okay? And I'm like, all right, what do I think they're talking about? And so I come back to the world as the fly on the wall. Here's what I think they're talking about. They're, they're looking saying, Charlie and Warren are going, Charlie looks at Warren and goes, Warren, you remember how hard we worked in the early 1970s and we ended up having our best decade ever, they did, but gosh, we had to work so damn hard that's my Mungerism. So damn hard. And, and, and Warren says, yeah. And then Munger says, you know what? I prefer to sit on my ass. Because if you sat on your, in Munger terms, ass in the 1970s, you would have actually gone long oil and almost done nothing else. I know that sounds overly simplistic, and it is. But to put it like Munger would say, I think it's right. And so here they are. They're saying, why work as hard as we did in the early 70s? 
to you know tread water or or get back to what we did by the late 70s why don't we just own an investment that we know is likely to be superior and we don't have to think very much about it i mean you know they, they sold out of some chevron here they just continue to buy oxy they continue to just buy and buy and buy it so i look at i look at their oxy ownership and i look back at books like this and think of the 70s think of t Rowe price think of the pivot he made think of what sir john templeton was doing those were just antithetical things to what investors wanted to do. Um, now, where else can you apply this? Go find things that other people will not own for whatever reason. Um, so for example, there is something called ESG in this world, okay? And, and, and some people have to live in light of that, but not all people do. And like, like the book shows commonly, I think the small investor does have a big upper hand advantage in this. If you don't have mandates on your life, the flexibility is more inherent. And so I, I look at ESG as a godsend for people like us as investors or people like the T. Rose of that era. Because if you have certain mandates tied to you, that limits what you can do, but that doesn't decide the value of something. That just tells you what you can or can't own. And so I think there are added wrinkles in this era that you have to overlay even compared to a T. Rowe Price 1970s era. And I think one part is the requirements that you have in the fund or whatever portfolio you're running. Uh, but one is also your perception, your identity. Correct. I yeah. am this type of investor. And for T. Rowe Price, I mean, people were really skeptical when he, he, he made this move, as you said. I mean, people were saying, but, but you're supposed to invest in T. Rowe Price stocks. This is a T. Rowe Price stock. Yeah. Why are you not owning it? You're leaving yeah. this one. Exactly. Well, and so I, and Henrik will be able to appreciate this. So uh, it, this is, I love this, by the way, I, you know, I, I think we're really flexible people. I, my wife would say, ah, but so here's why I say it. Back in 2011, we as a firm, we were as negative as you could be on commodities, oil, the China story at large. Okay. Now why? We had came across a chart. I'll, I'll give Barry Bannister credit for this, but we, we had came across a chart that showed the 205 year rolling returns in stocks versus commodities. And commodities had never done so well relative to stocks. So to your point, what does that teach you? It teaches you what not to do, right? So we own nothing in commodities. We own nothing in energy. We sat there for a decade plus. I mean, by the way, long before any of the ESG mandates have limited a lot of investors in those arenas. Now, wake up in 2023, but really the last couple of years. We own, in some respects, all the assets that we had avoided in the prior era. Now, why? because the merits of the price and the businesses that we got that you couldn't get at that prior time. So, you know, what T. Rowe Price was doing prior was saying in the 60s, here's the type of businesses that I found of value. They were growth businesses. They were consistent blue chip growth businesses, things of those nature. And then when those became unattractive, he pivoted to the non-T. Rowe Price stocks, to your point. And now the question is, who's willing to do that? You know, as an example, I, I kind of mentioned Terry a couple of times. Terry has made it very known that he will not own an oil company. He will not. Okay. And by the way, I think one of the more damaging things that investors can say, particularly in an era like this, is never, never, because if you're required to have flexibility, never is a terrible word. Okay. Um, what if, what if God sets up a circumstance in common stock markets? where you had to have 100% of your portfolio in utilities that produce bad returns because everything else was more stupidly priced. Would I ever want to come to an investor and say, I'll never own utilities? 
Now, generally speaking, do I want to own a utility business? No, but I could damage capital by telling people never. Here's the other damaging thing about saying never is you wake up in a later era where you have to own that. You have to, the merits are just too great. And you've told everybody you'll never. And so the, the question is, well, are you sticking to your discipline or not? Right? So, um, you know, Terry at one time said, I would never own Facebook. I would never own Google. And isn't it funny? What does Terry own? The things he would never own. And again, as pragmatists and as humans, you know, I just, I think it's very damaging to go out and say never. Now to your point, there are businesses we will not own, but these are not for investment reasons. We will not own a tobacco producer. Why? Not because it's a sin, but because I don't want to own a company that ruins the life of their best customer. My grandmother died early smoking cigarettes. Um, I don't think it's that big of a deal, by the way, but to honor my father and mother, I'm not going to own that because my dad wouldn't either. It's, it's a way I look and say, it's a way I can honor my father and mother in what I do in my investing. Um, I don't want to own an alcohol business, not because I don't like alcohol. I love alcohol. There's nothing wrong with it. I love a good old fashioned, but it's just not a business I want to own. Uh, same with pornography. I think pornography damages families, ruins lives. It's just not good for humanity. So I willfully choose, we willfully choose not to own those kind of businesses. But here's the weird part. You'll never find that in our materials. Those are personal decisions we made. And that's not like, a, I'll never own it, but if it, like, it gets really attractive, I won't. Most things that people say never on right now, it's for investment purposes. It's not ideological or religious purposes. They say that. It's, I'll never own this because that's a superfluous business. And then you wake up later and they're like, well, it's not so superfluous, is it? So, uh, Cole, that uh, brings us perfect into um, the next part of this discussion. Not Cole the reader, but uh, Cole the CEO of um, and portfolio manager of Smeed Capital Management. Mm -hmm. uh, was the um, you, you mentioned before that um, you were the one in the family that sort of um, got more attracted to this line of business than than your than your siblings uh, <coughs> was the pathway to to that career always laid out clearly for you or when did it really strike you yeah the answer is no uh in other words i, I knew to your point henrik I, i knew i wanted to go in the investment business what i did in the investment business i didn't know that's the part i didn't know now so um again negative arts negative arts are how you learn that's how you deduce things if you will So I, I took my first job out of college as a financial advisor with Wachovia Securities, now part of Wells Fargo Advisors. And um, what I learned really quickly is that I love the investment business. I love stocks. Um, I was not called to deal with private clients. In other words, I can understand the rational and logic of someone wanting to do that, but I want to invest capital. I want to grow capital, trying to help everyone figure that out. That might not be my job. Doesn't mean I don't want to communicate, but Do I want to own bonds for someone? Do I want to do all the other things that that came with? The answer is no. I just had no interest in it. So, um, you know, that, I did that. And then what happened is dad was going to start the business. And so I looked and said, you know what? Great. Now, how, do, how did I evolve in that? Well, you wake up, you show up and you say, great. Dad's starting a business. I know this discipline really well. I can talk about it with investors. We need to raise capital. So that was my initial role. How do you raise capital? Um, now. By the way, I, I really, I, I'm so glad. I'm so glad I got to do that. And the reason being is that it's like Buffett says, 
I'm a better I'm a better investor because I'm a business person, and I'm a better business person because I'm an investor. So learning how to raise capital has been incredibly valuable to me as an investor to think about what's the process for a business that's growing? What's the process for a business that needs to get to a, a bigger size in what they do in revenue and things of that nature? But further from that, as, as I move forward, you know, I, I went through the CFA program. My only financial accounting experience um, or training came through the CFA program. Um, now, by the way, I, I consider myself a financial accounting savant. I love financial accounting. I think it's super sexy. I think it is magical because you can almost do anything you want with it, okay? And that's why I love financial accounting versus I would never want to touch managerial accounting. It would be boring. I don't want to do credits and debits. It's not sexy, okay? But the CFA program is the only uh, thing I had to teach me balance sheet analysis. I was an econ history double major in college. So um, I'd never taken an accounting class until I got in the CFA program. But as I move forward, you know, I went from raising money for a business to then, you know, working solely on the investment side of our business and then eventually, you know, being the CEO of our business. So I would say like 10 to 15% of my day would be tied to things of the business versus sitting down talking about what do we own? What do we find attractive? What are their insider buying? What can we get through our eight criteria? What fails automatically? Um, those kind of things. That's where I spend most of my time. And again, you know, I'll give you an ideological thing that's really helped me. We're in a current state of our business where we're growing. So we're making OPEX investments to grow. Now, OPEX in our business is CAPEX to other businesses that have tangible assets. So I point that out because I know right now we're running lower earnings or free cash flows of business to grow. Um, well, that's good to understand in our business because I can apply that to public stock markets where other businesses are using that same thing. They could be running higher profitability, but they're choosing to grow. Most, I'll call it most, investors, most value people never understand that because also they don't run their money management firm either. And so I think that's a valuable thing that as we run our business, as we do these things, that what, what we feel we need to have success there's as much to learn inside of our business as say a VC business would be learning, for example, um, or a company that's growing in the public stock market. Um, we have less in common with a stable business because we don't run ourselves like a stable business. Not sure if your dad is an avid podcast listener, but let's pretend he's not for the next question. Growing yeah. up or getting into the business, uh, who were your uh, greatest investment <clears throat> heroes? Uh, so I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you like when I was getting out of college, Bill Miller, Bill Miller was like the end all. I mean, he was, and so I got out of college in 06. Here's Bill Miller just killed the market for 15 years. I mean, I, so I'm, I'm to this day, I'm a huge fan of bills. Um, I think he's incredibly brilliant. I look at him as like, he's in, in my mind, his, you know, his eccentricities, he's kind of like a Benjamin Franklin type. He's just very eccentric. His mind wanders. Um, and I, I have huge respect for Bill. I've got to, I, my dad and I, this is back in 2011 or 12. We were in Baltimore at the time. Bill was still with Leg Mason. It was where he was running Leg Mason Miller. He was still part of Leg Mason at that point. And so we, we, we were like, you know what? We got extra time in Baltimore. Let's go see Bill Miller. And for me, this was like, oh my gosh. You know, it's like, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to the pearly gates, I'm meeting with St. Peter, right? And um, so we, we, he was just a real treasure, spent some time with him and his, his um, what was his copium then, now runs the Lake Mason Opportunity Fund, uh, 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 Samantha McLemore. Um, and so visited with them. And at the time, what we talked about was home builders because home building was on its back, okay? And I'll never forget this. I love this classic Bill Miller. So Bill, Bill must have looked at our stuff or looked at our criteria before. And, um, you know, we said, listen, we have eight criteria. And we said, you know, Bill, the one thing we can't get past um, uh, in most of the home builders, the one exception at that time was NVR. We said, the one thing we can't get past is the balance sheet of these home builders, okay? And he leans over the table, looks across, and he knew we, you know, we had said we had eight criteria. And he said, maybe you should only have seven criteria. <laughs> I will never forget that. It, it's one of the greatest lines I've ever heard, you know, it, it, among professionals in this industry. Now, here's why I say that. There's still something to learn in what Bill Miller said that. The businesses you wanted to buy then were the worst balance sheets were the worst balance sheets. Now, here's the danger in that. You don't know the future. You could not have foreknown the future. Looking back, that was the after the fact best decision. And by the way, here's what's weird. There is not such a thing as a bad balance sheet in home building today. There is not. Every single home builder can pay off their free cash flow, but pay off their debt with less than two years of free cash flow. It's crazy. So Bill Miller was right that the balance sheet was far less questionable if you could look back from 2023, but we, we didn't have that advantage. We had never owned a home builder up to that point. And so that was a real treasure for me. I'd always admired Bill. I, I, we've done, I think I've done one other call with Bill. It was the spring of 20. And so here like the all hell's breaking loose. And Bill says, listen, this is one of the five greatest buying opportunities of the last 50 years. And it was just like, he's right, he's right. You, you got to load the gun. That's the time you had to load the gun. And so I wrote a piece back then called Betting the Long Odds. And it was based on Sir John Templeton throwing $10,000 that you'll find in this book into the market. He borrowed the money. Um, and it wasn't that he knew he was going to be right. But if, interestingly, if you look back, a lot of people that have studied the stocks he bought and the stocks he bought, um, they produced the most wealth because many of them had ran negative, uh, they'd, they'd had losses in the prior years to where when the war picked up, right, the war broke out, the war picked up and World War II spending took off tied to the government. They made so much money that they didn't pay cash taxes for years. In other words, all the money fell to the bottom line to the investors in the forms of dividends, ultimately. So I, 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 I think about that a lot because you know, interacting with him and those two different advantages, I, I think back and say, gosh, you know, he taught me something. Bill Miller taught me something in 2011. How did that help us? It helped us a lot in 2020 in oil, right? In other words, you had to have a perception that you, you needed to be more optimistic than other people were about the capital structure of the oil businesses because no one could see, you know, to use a, a Sir John Templeton term, no one could see light at the end of the tunnel, okay? And, and, and Miller had really reinforced that idea in my head after him mocking us in 2011 and 2012. And he was right. And by the way, I'm so glad, like Munger says, you want to you rub your nose in your mistakes. 
Okay, you want to rub your nose in your mistakes. We would have been better off buying the worst balance sheet home builders and sitting through this all the way till today. And you have to put your nose down there and smell it. It doesn't smell good. And you got to learn from those things. And I, I again, I, I give a lot of credit to Bill. And again, I, I it's a blessing. You know, to your point on Robert Hegstrom, Robert Hegstrom has been a treasure to interact with. I mean, just the fact that, you know, you guys, we can have conversations and talk about him and have practical, pragmatic discussions. That's incredible. I mean, I, I cannot believe I get to do that. It's a blessing. So perfect segue into the next um, uh, question. I mean, today there are every investor in, you know, in today's era of Morningstar and Style Drifts and investment counselors and whatnot. I mean, most investors today swim in the same current, right? You invest yeah. in, in compounders or um, companies with big moats, et cetera, et cetera. But you're different and you certainly um, drank the contrarian Kool-Aid or whatever you might call it. So yeah. and I think towards the end of your uh, letters or missives that you call them, for a few years now, you've, you've, you've written fear stock market failure. I mean, how how did this happen and how did you keep the flexibility uh, of thinking in your firm? So I'll, I'll give you another book. I'm sorry. It's just how I live my life. Perfect um, podcast I, to do that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the author's name is Donald Miller. He's kind of like a marketing person. Um, if, if I remember correctly, the title is uh, it is uh, creating a story brand is the name of the book. Okay. So here's his thesis. In every great story, there's a hero, but your brand, your company, it cannot be the hero, right? Like Henrik, think of how often a money manager, uh, he, or, he or her are built up on this pedestal as though they're the hero. And you just know when that happens, it's going to be miserable after, right? So we know it's not even good for the money management business to even imply that they're the hero because it's like the Sports Illustrated cover problem, right? So we're never the hero. And he points that out. He says, you're the guide. So you can't be Luke Skywalker, you're Obi-Wan. And I think that's really important because not only is it true in investing, like I can't be the hero. I can't be the star of the show. It's the investors that have success. They are the hero. But further from a brand perspective, he pointed out that you know that's true of all great storytelling. And therefore you have to think about your brand in light of that. And so, where, where that fear stock market failure came from is he points out that as you're going to tell your story, if people don't realize that they have a problem, thus they have a need for what you do, why would they care? Why would they care? Right? Like if you think about it, let's say, um, like let, let, I'll use, let's use the Segway as an example, right? So if you have a Segway, um, great, I can get around quicker on a Segway, but is my problem that I can't walk around on my own two legs? So like, why has the Segway not been widely adopted? I would say, because there's not really a problem that it's fixing. Versus most people, most people, if you look at the dollar weighted returns of stocks or investors dollar weighted returns, they do terrible. They fail in the stock market. Um, if you go look at Dalbar, for example, most investors fail in the stock market. Who ends up producing most of the success of the stock market? Insiders, right? Because they're forced by nature to be involved in the business, stay involved in it, and not worry about the twos and fro's of the business. So I point that out because 
Um, you know, we all have an uncle. We all have a friend. We all have that person who got involved in the stock market and got crushed. And they're skeptical of ever coming back to it. So we look at it as most people fail in the stock market. All we're doing is just recognizing that. There is, there is just as high a likelihood that someone never has success in stocks. And if they don't understand that, then why would they need, to your point, our discipline? Why would they need to do something different? Why would they have any need for that? And so uh, as an example, we think it was also timely to change our brand to that, Henrik, because I mean, I wasn't, we weren't coming out with that at the beginning of a bull market, right? We were coming and saying, hey, this smells, looks, tastes, a lot like the late 1960s and plausibly the late 1990s. So what is the higher likelihood today? The higher likelihood today is the stock market failure is gonna wreak havoc on investors, good and bad. And therefore we know that, we, we know there's a high likelihood of that. And we have a discipline, we have a criteria to deal with those things. And by the way, also like back to the businesses we're buying, we have pivoted like a T. Rowe Price to a different era, the commodity oriented businesses that we wouldn't have owned in the 2010s, we now own. Um, now, to your point, is it easy to do that? No, it's not, it's tough. It Was it easy to be T. Rowe Price? No, but here's the good part. It was a lot tougher to get us to where we were today, I think, than it is to pivot and make the decisions that we have the last two or three years. I think the biggest danger is people not doing that. In other words, I, I would be more scared to be sitting on the big blue chip quality names today than to be sitting in you know the oil businesses, let's just say, that we're buying. And so um, again, go back to what I said earlier when I was 16, I learned that being in opposition is a more comfortable place for me as an investor. And so oddly, it's like, this is kind of what God made us for. And our branding, to your point, is just very reflective of that. We do not want to fail in the stock market. We don't want to fall subject to what Buffett and Sequoia Fund did in the early 1970s. So when you make this kind of pivot and you always need to keep your eyes open, of course, for new opportunities. I mean, that was where we talked about the, the money mind, always seeing investment opportunities and, and being flexible. But, but how do you prioritize your time then? I mean, growing your circle of competence and you need to know what to spend your time on. I mean, it's a, it's a tough, tough challenge to go into a new uh, area like that? Yeah, it's a great question. You just take the first step. That's it. You just take the first step. So as to your point, it, let's say we're on this podcast, you know, 10 years ago, and you say, Cole, what do you know, know about the energy business generally? And I'd say, well, I generally know they waste money and I generally know they don't have good balance sheets. And that's what I generally know, which is nothing, okay? Well, but again, I only went as far as I stepped, okay? Now, now, so here's what happens, okay? You watch what goes on in the spring of 20, but prior to that, late, late 19, Warren Buffett's buying his preferred Zenoxy. Sam Zell, another successful investor, is out buying existing production that's distressed. And then you have Peter Lynch, you know, a, a T. Rowe Price kind of figure in another era, one of the greatest growth stock investors of all time in late 19 in Barron's in November of 19 saying he sees triple or he sees three baggers and four baggers in ENPs, exploration production companies. And to watch the confluence of that, incredible. So you just know, okay, I need to start learning. I need to start acquiring knowledge. 
because great minds are agreeing in opposition to other market participants. So you just take your first step. So you start doing your work on Oxy, okay? Because Buffett's involved, probably not a bad start. Not so risky, I would argue, uh, from a historical context. And then you continue to plow your way in. Um, what you end up gaining as you take each step, you learn more. Uh, another book, The Frackers. I read The Frackers in the spring of 20. Wonderful book. Greg Zuckerman does a great job of writing about that. So that's the one thing that books give you. They can speed up the steps. And I don't think people recognize that. They speed up your learning. They speed up the process. Because by the end of all those steps that you just did day after day after day after day, you end up with what I will argue is always true. You end up with a cumulative advantage. It is not anything on its own. It's the accumulation of each of those steps. So for example, you go do that and you start in the energy business, right? You start doing that in the energy business and you continue to get more and more involved. I think a segmented opportunity energy business is I can go out and find, back to the financial accounting thing, I can find businesses where you need to adjust the book value because the debt is so cheap, and so long in duration that if you went to a banker right now and tried to buy that balance sheet, you'd have to pay billions to get that balance sheet. So I, I look and say, well, based on what I've learned in the oil business, that's not a liability, that's an asset, okay? So again, but you don't start there. You can't start there. You have to build that up. Um, now, what has it also pivoted us to? Well, you just continue to learn from there about the energy business at large. I mean, we've done a ton of research on natural gas businesses, which we don't own an explicit natural gas producer. You end up doing a bunch of research on like coal businesses, like that part of the world that no one wants to touch, but we just so happen to have two continents, you know, using more and more and more every day. Um, now, did I start out and say, you know what? I want to learn about the coal business. No, you just continue to take steps. Um, now, do things continue to force you to take steps? Yeah, in our case, insider buying. Insider buying causes us to take steps. Hey, what do those insiders know that we don't? Why do they like today's price? Great, let's take a step. Let's learn about that business. All, all, you know, to use that as example, we're doing a lot of work in banking today because we see insiders buying. So you just begin to take a step. Have we ever looked at regional lenders before? No, no, but you're just starting to take your steps. So I, I think to your point, you always look back and say, gosh, I know a lot, but you can't ever say that at the beginning. Um, did you guys notice in the Berkshire meeting, uh, Buffett commented on what Charlie knows about the oil business. He said at the Berkshire meeting, and I found this keenly interested because if you said Cole, who do you idolize? I idolize Charlie Munger. I, like he is my hero. Like if you say, who's the hero of the faith that you practice? Charlie Munger. Okay. By the way, I can tell you where he doesn't practice it perfectly, which is why I know he's human. But, but I really idolize Charlie Munger. Buffett said in the meeting, he said, Charlie knows a lot more about the oil business than I do. So when I look at the Oxy investment, what did I say earlier? If I was the fly on the wall, Munger said, Warren, let's find just something we can sit on our ass with. And so I actually think if, if you said, who's really pushing the Oxy thing? I think it particularly is Munger. But again, I don't know that because I've manifested that. I know that through reading and learning and watching and experiencing each of those steps has got me there. And, and you know, you think of like, you think of um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, who has talked about 10,000 hours. Um, that's what he gets, you know, to consider like a proficient where you know what you're doing. But in investing, that, that's not where you can end. 
Um, I think the most dangerous thing to the mind of an investor is the idea that you've already arrived, right? In other words, that you don't need to take any more steps. That's a very dangerous and damaging place. And I think that's where people often find themselves. Um, you know, to use a use, use another, you mentioned a money mind. I mentioned to Robert Hextrom that uh, I said, well, Robert, did you know that that is the name of, of Phil Caray's book, right? A Money Mind at 90. And here's the funny part. He didn't know that till after he published his book. <laughs> he, no one had said, by the way, there's a title out there touching on this money mind issue. Phil Caray was a money mind into his, you know, his 90s. And Buffett at the meetings, at Buffett at the meetings would say, oh, hey, it's like the 94 meeting. Buffett would say, oh, hey, Phil Caray's here in the crowd. I want to give a big round of applause for Phil. He's a real hero. Like, I'm a, he's a hero of mine, and I want to recognize him for what he's done. Phil Caray, in my opinion, would be doing exactly what Smith Capital Management's doing. He was buying sugar, sugar at the outbreak of World War II because he knew that sugar was the most readily available form of energy out there which means that if you need to get energy to troops, what do you give them? You give them sugar and sugar markets took off like kind of commodity markets have. So again, I, you know, it's each step, it's each step, but do you, can you start to build this mural and this, um, can you start to build this mosaic after you take each of those steps? That is the fun part to this. You wake up with a masterpiece after taking steps for numerous days. I actually think that um, going back to the the oil business and so forth, Munger was thinking about this 10 years ago because I, re- I remember at one of the annual meetings, it might have been 14 or 15, I'm not sure, but uh, an early ESG person in the crowd asked him about all of this. And he said that I think it would be better for humanity if we use all the commodities we have in the ground right now instead of keeping them there. So in, in terms of, of, uh, of getting back to the all the companies are dying, but when? and how much will they produce before they die? He was on to the net present value already then, I believe, uh, so. Well, well, and I think, to your point, I think back then he answered that because I, I think the question came up around Burlington Northern, you know, them shipping, you know, liquid natural gas and things like that across the rail lines. And and Buffett commented, I think in that meeting, he said, oh, we think we're gonna, we think we're gonna be delivering a lot of that. In other words, they, they could see that from places you know, moving oil from Canada down to the US or down to the Gulf to be taken offshore, they could see that. So I agree, but here's what's interesting. In this meeting, he said, you know, you know, strategically, is it really that good for the United States to use its commodity versus use everybody else's right now? He was pretty much saying, we should be willing to pay higher prices for other countries' oil because ours strategically is more valuable to us from, I'm guessing, like a strategic military perspective. So I, I, again, if you looked at what Munger said in this meeting, it was different than what he said 10 years ago. Right, we could uh, get into all kinds of different um, topics and discussions here and, and sit for hours, but um, to uh, so, sort of finish up, apart from, from, from the, um, you know, going into perhaps a new investment era, like the end of the 60s into the 70s, what's best about being active in the market today? I mean, what do you see as as, as the most interesting things of, of, of this time and this era? Yeah, I mean, I, I, we just feel this is a blessing. I, this is an incredible era to be an investor. I mean, just as an example, I know Buffett and Munger in the, in the meeting and said, 
oh, you know, there's so many value investors and they're all practicing their craft. It's pretty much saying that like, there, there's, there's just too many people out there. I would, I would vociferously argue against that. I think there's the least number of people practicing a true value discipline relative to the last 20 years, okay? Um, now, let me add one more thing to that. Um, here's another thing that I think we understand. So use, use you know, it was just announced that Buffett and those guys were adding to Capital One Financial. Okay, so think of like, let's say you're the Sequoia Fund. It's 1970, you're in this new era. Was Sequoia Fund limited in what it could buy? And the answer was no, it wasn't that big. That is Berkshire Hathaway's biggest problem. Now, in an inversion, right? Munger says invert, always invert, right? That is their problem. That is our opportunity. So for example, if I'm Berkshire Hathaway, minimum market cap, minimum, $20 billion, $20 billion. So, okay, let's go look to the regional banking land in the United States today and say how many banks are bigger than $20 billion. There's just not that many. There's not that many today because the scale has brought the biggest to be very big. And there's not many in that 50, 60, or even down to like 25 billion. But there's a lot of names in five to $20 billion or five to $30 billion that we as an investor can go out and buy a 1% stake in, a 2% stake in, et cetera. But Berkshire Hathaway is limited. So I, you know, it's like a card game. You're, you're at the table, you know what your advantages are, and you can understand and think about what the other money managers' disadvantages are across the table from you. Um, you know, as an example, that's not just a Berkshire Hathaway problem. Go look at the biggest money management firms in the world. It's their problem. They can't plug a billion dollars into an oil company or a banking institution in times of distress. Why? They're too big. You know, if I'm T. Rowe Price today, you know, what do I hate? It being T. Rowe Price, the money management firm? I can't be Cole Smead. I can't be Bill Smead. I can't be the investors of Smead Capital Management. That is a huge opportunity for us. It's like what Sequoia Fund would have had in the 1970s. It's like what Buffett would have had in the 1970s. And so I look at this as like, I'm so glad I'm 39. I'm so glad we get to do what we do. This is a wonderful earth. Think of all the books that we get to study alongside folks like yourself that nobody cares about. Like, why would we ever be remiss about God's green earth that he's put us into in the era he's put us into? This is the greatest era to ever live into today. And the next year ahead will be even better when we're gone. Good advice to uh, my kids coming home tonight. That's for sure. Exactly. So besides being the CEO and portfolio manager of Smith Capital Management, you are also the host of A Book With Legs podcast, uh, which we recommend everyone to listen to, of course. Uh, and as this is also a, a book podcast, we, we like to wrap up with a few questions about reading and, and writing. And I, I'm curious about hearing a bit more about your reading habits. Yeah, yeah. so I have, I have four kids. Uh, and I, so I, I would say, first off, you have to schedule it. I mean, I, I have to schedule my reading. I literally have to. Um, I love vacation because that's my reading time particularly. So I would say you have to prioritize it. Um, I think it was a couple years ago, the Wall Street Journal was interviewing us uh, on a day that Target was getting crushed and, and Target's a holding bars. And they said, what were you doing? And I said, oh, I was reading a book. And they said, really? And I said, yeah, because that's more profitable than staring at, at, at stock prices. I mean, just think of how often we stare at stock prices and we're not trying to attain 
profitable knowledge, which is really where we make all of our money. So um, and by the way, the book I was reading at the time was George Hurst, wonderful book. And um, so I, I little side note, I like, you know, I like taking my books and learning and then asking how I can, you know, get more mentally involved. I'm going out to the charcoal kilns in Death Valley in a week and a half that is in his book. Why? Because I, I want to continue to have that creativity of that book run through my mind. So I would say prioritizing it. I think the second thing is um, I think you need to write about what you read because you get all these ideas in your head. And the wonderful part about how the human body is made is when you put pen to paper, your brain functions how it should. In other words, it's not enough to just attain knowledge. You have to then organize it. Okay. And organizing the information is actually what creates the most practical abilities to make money. So like, why are the librarians not the wealthiest people in the world? Well, because they might have read, but did they ever organize it? Did they ever put it to a practical application? And I think that's why writing is so important. So we write often, uh, you know, the, the missive we just had came out this week is called Good Odds and Odd Goods, where I talk about the Kentucky Derby. I talk about the favorites. I talk about, um, you know, at my college, you know, it was highly likely you'd find a mate, but they were really smart ladies in our case. So, you know, the goods are odd, but the, uh, the, 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 the goods are, the odds are good, but the goods are odd was what I said. So you know, I, I think, so reading and writing, uh, you know, you have to be wandering. It's like a, it's almost like a book walkabout that you're on. You're on this walkabout and you're on your own, just like you are as an investor. And you have to figure out things in an unknown world on this walkabout. And that determines whether you're successful or not. How good are you being on your own on that walkabout? So, so when you're reading, are you reading one book at a time and just going through it at once? Or are you reading multiple books at the same time? Or, or how do you work with that? I, I usually get, I'll usually get into, I'll get multiple books where I get say 50 to 100 pages in on. And then I will then prioritize which one I'm gonna finish. So for example, I'll, I'll give you the ones I'm currently reading. Um, I'm, I'm finishing up Easy Money. Um, I, you know, I, I reread aspects of John Train's book for this podcast today. Um, the other books I, I'm finishing up, uh, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm about 150 pages into Barry Strauss's book, The, the, War, the, uh, the War That Made the Roman Empire. And then the other book I'm reading is Brett Scott's book, Cloud Money, which is kind of a, why do the credit card companies and crypto businesses, how do they kind of all have incentives that are built certain ways and whatnot, kind of, you know, out there. And I may be like 30 pages into that so far. So I usually like to have multiple things because you can kind of dabble. Now, another question I get asked is if these are all nonfiction, right? These are all nonfiction books. If I really want to adventure, where do I adventure in fiction? And the answer is Hemingway. Hemingway is where I adventure. Okay, so For Whom the Bell Tolls, wonderful book. I visited Hemingway's house in Key West. He had, this is really cool, he had in-ground lights in his pool in the 20s. I mean, like, this guy was, like, super cool. And so I, I, I look at Hemingway and say, kind of a strange character, traveled the world, um, you know, romanticist, but womanizer at the same time. Those are the things I don't want to copy, but interesting guy. And so I look at Hemingway and I say, you know, I, you know, I kind of like adventuring in Hemingway to clear my mind. 
And so that's where I go when I need to do something where it's like, I need to be off kilter. I don't want to read a nonfiction book and I need to just imagine I go to Hemingway books. So is there something you don't read? Uh, self-help books are terrible. They're deplorable. They're, they're a waste of time. Um, I, you know, when I, when I see them on a book stand, I just feel bad for the people that buy them. It is a gimmick. Um, it's like buying a weight loss routine. Um, you, you can read it. It's great. I know Tony wants to help you all figure out life. I, I would say, I, I, this is my own personal belief. Um, I think they'd be better off buying a Bible and just keeping it on their bookshelf. They'll, they'll find way more profitable things in how God wants to cause them to flourish than they could in the next self-help guide. Cole Smith, thank you so much for coming on Investing by the Books podcast. And especially because if you're cold, I mean, you took uh, more than one hour here to speak with us. So we really appreciate that. And really interesting getting into Money Masters and, and your investment style. Do, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? No, I, I just think you guys are doing something wonderful. And I, I've, you know, for the listeners of your podcast, I would say, um, if you're wondering, yes, they're getting something out of this too. I mean, what they get to learn in these discussions is so valuable for what they're doing in their line of business. And so um, I just, I want to thank your audience and I want to thank you guys as well. Thank you so much and, and happy to keep in, in contact. And lastly, where can our audience follow you and, and the work of yours? Uh, well, like you said, on, on a Book With Legs podcast, we write often. So I think go on our website and sign up for our missives. I have become pretty active on Twitter uh, in the last two years. So um, my, my handle is uh, at Cole underscore Smeed. You can find me there. And uh, I mean, I, I don't comment on anything. Um, I don't share my personal life there, but I comment on anything that I think is funny or of investment value there on Twitter. Perfect. We'll put that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Cole. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve... We'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.